0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. A man was at the post office counter off to the side, filling out some paperwork for the business he had to take care of that day. As he was at work, he was approached by an older gentleman. Excuse me, sir, could I ask for your help? Certainly, what can I do? The older gentleman said, I'm wondering if you could address this postcard for me. My hand's a bit shaky. I would appreciate if you would help me. So I'd be glad to do so. And so the gentleman took the pen and listened to the older man's instructions and wrote in the address. Then the older gentleman said, now, could you do me another favor? Yes. Could you just write a little note? I'll dictate it. Sure, happy to help. And so the older gentleman dictated the note and the man wrote it. Anything else? Well, yes, could you, could you sign it for me? Okay, how would you like me to sign it? He filled it in. Is that all? Uh, no, could you add one other thing? Could you write a P.S. for me? All right, I'm happy to do that. P.S., what would you like me to write? Write this. Please excuse the sloppy handwriting. <laughs> some people just don't know when to be thankful do they or some of us don't even know who to be thankful to or what for I saw on an online forum this past week a woman had posted a question in which she was inviting Other people to weigh in and to try to give her some guidance, some direction for the quandary which she faced. Here's what she wrote I received a thank you note from a family member thanking me for a different gift than the one I gave. Do I say anything or do I let it go? I'm not spending time worrying about this or anything. I'm just wondering if I should mention something so the correct recipient is thanked. If it matters, I had given a $50 gift card to Amazon, and I was thanked for Bath and Body Works lotion. So what should I do? So that was the question. Should I say anything, or should I just let it go? Now, I'll I'll tell you what tended to be the response of those who were online, but before that, I'm curious what your response is. I mean, we're in a series called Here We Stand. We ought to be able to take a stand, right? (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to stand, though. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hands, if you would, please, so... How many of you would say, I would say something so the correct giver gets thanked? Let me see your hands. I would say something. Hold them up high now. Well, there are a number of you. A few of us in the back, all right. So a few of you would say. How many of you would say, no, just let it go? Just let it go. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. The let it goes clearly won. Well, online, it was a mixed bag, including somebody who said, well, now, wait a minute. You're just wanting to get credit for $50 when they probably only spent $20 on the other. You're wanting to get the right credit. She said, no, 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 that's not it. But it seemed like the preponderance of the responses were, say something, so that they know their gift was received and maybe they can figure out who to send the thank you to. Sometimes we're not sure when to be thankful. Sometimes they're not even sure whom to thank and for what. That was, in a sense, the situation of the medieval church. In the medieval church, when it came to things spiritual, when it came to whom to give credit For the gift of God's grace. When it came to knowing how is it that I have contact with God, that God works in my life, when it came to all those kinds of things, there was a mixed bag of ways to respond to that. Some talked about doing it through church leaders, others talked about doing it through saints, others talked about doing it through other human beings or angelic forces. There were many responses to who exactly do I give credit to? Who exactly do I thank? It was in that context that Martin Luther and the other reformers responded to that question in a very simple way. There's some debate as to whether they actually used these precise three words or not. But that about which there is no debate is that this was the content of their response. Who do I thank? To whom do I give credit? Response was clear. Sole deo gloria. Only To God goes the glory. To God only be the glory. That was their clear and firm response. Now it's not as though they came up with that themselves. The truth is that is a message that echoes out of the pages of Scripture in both Old and New Testaments. In fact, if we turn, which we're going to do now, to what is arguably the key book of the Reformation... The book of Romans in the New Testament. If we turn to the book of Romans, we will see that it echoes forth from the pages there. Now, we're going to read two passages in Romans this morning. We're going to read Romans 11 and we're going to read Romans 16. But I want to give you a bit of context, a bit of background before we read the passages. Romans is really divided into two sections. That's often true of Paul's writings. There's one section, the theological section, chapters 1 through 11, and then there's a second section, the practical section, chapters 12 to 16. In the theological section, Paul unpacks in a more articulate and comprehensive way than he does anywhere else in all of his writings the realities of the righteousness of God, of justification by faith, of the grace that gives us right standing with God apart from the works of the law. He does it in a more detailed, comprehensive fashion there than anywhere else. In fact, we could argue that it happens there more comprehensively than anywhere else in all of Scripture. That's the first section, chapters 1 to 11. Then comes the second section, chapters 12 to 16. First was theological. This is the practical section. First is doctrine. Next is duty. In this section, Paul talks about the ways in which the Spirit works into our hearts and lives, the transforming grace of God that affects all of our relationships with others. The ways that we live in the world are totally transformed. That's in that section. Now, Romans, some would argue, is Paul's magnum opus. I do love Ephesians, but Romans is hard to bypass. We could spend a lot of time in Romans, just to give you an idea of the kind of time serious Bible students and even serious preachers (laughs) spend in Romans. Think of yesteryear's preacher at Westminster Chapel in London, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. David Martin Lloyd-Jones preached an extended series on Romans, taking it verse by verse in expositional fashion. I just ordered this past week the volumes that contain his one series on the book of Romans. One series. Fourteen volumes. Two to three hundred pages each. And you thought my series were long. (laughs) (laughs) We could spend a lot of time in Romans. But this morning, we're just going to read two passages. What I want to do is I want to read the passage at the end of each of those two sections. So the first section where Paul is saying, this is the righteousness of God. This is how God has worked on our behalf. This is how by faith, through the free gift of his grace, we can have right standing with God. I want to know at the end of that, how does Paul respond? What does he say? So let's turn there. Romans 11, we'll read that one first. It's the last verses of the chapter. This is after all the theological, some would say, density because it's not easy. What does he say? Romans eleven thirty three. he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So when it's all said and done, the work that God does on our behalf, the work that God does for us, how does Paul respond? He responds, as it were, by staggering backwards and saying, God is so mighty and so great. His wisdom and his knowledge are unfathomable. Unfathomable. His paths are untraceable. His mind is beyond our grasp. In fact, there's no way we could give anything to him that we would then be able to say, God is paying me back. He's just too grand and sublime for that. And to all of that, you heard it, what Paul says right at the end, to him be the glory forever. The reformers might have said it this way, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory for all that he is, has done for our salvation. Soli Deo Gloria. But that's not the end of the book. The book continues on through chapter 16 with, again, Paul unpacking the grace of God, but this time it's the grace of God that moves in empowering ways in our lives so that we might walk, might walk as disciples walk in maturity in Christ. He's very detailed in this section. Says some powerful things. One of the favorite verses of mine appears in this section in terms of how we get along with others. I love the verse he says, "If it be possible, so much as lies within you, live at peace with all people." Paul's a realist. He realizes it's not all always possible. But he also realizes that sometimes since it's not always possible, we use that as an excuse. If it be possible, so much as lies within you, live at peace with everyone. That's what he has to say. Those kinds of directions, those kinds of instructions in this section. So first of all, God works in grace to save us. Now he says God works in empowerment to change us, to transform us and the way we live. So the question again is, when he comes to the end of that section, that section that many would argue requires Human effort. What does he say there? Romans 16, beginning with verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to faith and obedience. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, what's Paul's response to what God does in a transformative way in our lives? He says, look, he will establish you in this gospel. He will root you in it. You will grow in it. In fact, he will bring the world together, Jew and Gentile, that all might live out the ethic of this gospel. And when he considers all that God does in that way on our behalf, what is it that he says to the only wise God? Be glory in Jesus Christ. The reformers might have said, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. We might have expected it in the first one. after all, the grace of God is something that we not only cannot deserve, we cannot initiate. God is fully active there. No wonder he says, Soli Deo Gloria. But even over here where we might have expected some credit on our behalf, Soli Deo Gloria. Paul is clear on who to thank and on what thanks to give. And so, too, were the Reformers as they lived out the concepts of soli deo gloria. I want to read to you from Dean Erickson, an Old Testament professor at Crown College in Minnesota, as he writes about this fifth sola of the Protestant Reformation. We've been in this series This series, Here We Stand, the five solas, we're on the fifth one. Listen to what Erickson writes. Soli Deo Gloria is commonly translated, glory to God alone. The first four solas affirm that God alone, this is what the first four affirm, that God alone can provide salvation by grace, that's sola gratia, through faith, that's sola fide, revealed through Scripture, sola scriptura, made possible through the sacrificial death and life-giving resurrection of Christ alone. That's solus Christus. Our very lives depend upon God alone. Therefore, we give glory to God alone. In this way, soli deo gloria pulls together all of the solas into a single expression of praise to God alone. It also calls us to commit with Paul These words, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So soli deo gloria, argues Erickson, is the summary of all the solas, because God is responsible for each of the others, so we know precisely whom to thank and that for which to thank him. But it's easy, isn't it? I find myself in this more times than I care to admit. It's easy to want to take the credit ourselves. To think that it's all about us. To take an approach that essentially says, God, you are so blessed to have us. What would you do without us? To have the focus turned inward. To think we are the ones deserving of the honor. Easy to turn that way. Whenever we come to that place, it's worth thinking back to the medieval church 500 years ago, where saints and sinners and church leaders and other mortals were being given rights and privileges and honor they didn't deserve. Remind ourselves of that so we don't fall into the same trap. It was the summer of 1945. American soldiers were streaming back into this country from World War II. They were coming by the thousands, the tens of thousands. Well, among them, here and there, were well-known personalities who had served. One such well-known personality was the Yankee slugger, Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio came home, and now he was going to rejoin his Yankees. But on this particular day, summer of 1945, 1945, He was going to be fan, Joe DiMaggio. He took his son, Joe DiMaggio Jr., with him. He went to the stadium, made his way up into the mezzanine, sat in one of the seats up there, just wanting to blend in and just be a fan. But it wasn't long before somebody spotted him. And you know how it is. They look and look a little closer, and that's Joe DiMaggio And then pretty soon the word began to spread and others began to recognize him and pretty soon the whole section knew he was there. And it wasn't long after that, then the fans began to chant, Joe, 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 Joe DiMaggio, Joe, 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 Joe DiMaggio. Well, he was honored by the tribute they were paying to him. I'm sure it must have filled his heart with gratitude and he's human, certainly a little pride as well. Now pride that he looked down at his son to see if his son understood what was happening to his old dad. When he looked down, he saw a son that was just filled with joy, almost laughing, almost giddy with excitement. And he said to him, Daddy, Daddy, they all know me. They know who I am. It's all about me, Daddy. <laughs> a scholar named Steve Farish, in a paper he submitted to the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society back in 2009, reflected on that incident with these words. The junior Joe DiMaggio made the innocent child's mistake of assuming all the glory at the Yankee Stadium that summer afternoon in 1945 belonged to him and not to his father. Human beings, however, make a far less innocent mistake when we live as if, as if our lives were all about us and our glory rather than about our Heavenly Father and His glory. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 121 that the fundamental sin of the human heart involves a purposeful failure to honor God as God or to give thanks to Him. That is, to give the Lord glory in the form of worship that He alone is due. As much as we may want to think, the chanting is about us. It's not. It's about our Father, who is the author of salvation. It's about grace. The gift of faith He gives us to access and receive that grace. The work of Jesus alone. But it's easy to turn it inward. Think it's about us. But sometimes I pause to think what if we were to lay alongside each other the best that we have to offer and the best that God has to offer? Lay alongside each other the glory of human beings and the glory of God divine. We would go utterly silent. Because the reality of the human condition is that of a feeble and faltering and frail, though precious, in the eyes of God, creature. Here's where I think Christopher Hitchens had it right. Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, well-known and very outspoken atheist, was asked at one point what he thought Christianity's greatest contribution was Now, Hitchens had a background, had grown up in at least a nominally Christian home. New church, through the hymns, some of the texts, but had become a very outspoken opponent of belief. And then here he is, asked this question, what's the greatest contribution of Christianity? Here's how Hitchens responded. I haven't been asked that in those terms before, but I find it strangely easy to say that what it would be from the prayers I used to intone and the hymns and psalms I used to sing and the lessons I used to read and hear. The greatest contribution of Christianity in my life is the reminder of the complete ephemerality, that is the state of being temporary or short-lived, of human power and indeed of human existence, the transience of all states, empires, heroes, grandiose claims and so forth. That's always with me. And I dare say I could have got that from other sources, too. But the way I got it and the way it's implanted in me is certainly by Christianity. The transient nature of human beings. No wonder the psalmist says, we are but a mist that vanishes away a marine layer that when the light of the sun hits, disappears. Where a breath that comes and then is gone. And then the psalmist asks in the elegant words of the old King James, with all of that in mind, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. Lay that alongside the grandeur and the wonder of God. It kind of helps keep clear to whom credit is due, who to thank, and the reasons for which we thank. I appreciate the writer Philip Yancey and the way he kind of brings the grandeur of God to light through the creation. In fact, right here in the the book of Romans, from which we read, Paul does that in Romans 1. He talks about the fact that we can understand something about God just by looking at the wonders of creation around us. It's as though Paul is saying, just look, and on it you will see the fingerprints of God. Well, Yancey picks that up and helps us understand something of the grandeur of God with these words. If the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. Just let that sink in. If the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. Even now, two Voyager spacecraft are hurtling toward the edge of the solar system at a rate of 100,000 miles per hour. For almost three decades, actually now it's been four, he wrote this in 2006, for almost three decades they have been speeding away from the earth, approaching a distance of nine billion miles. When engineers beam a command to the spacecraft at the speed of light, it takes 13 hours to arrive. Yet this vast neighborhood of our sun, in truth, the size of a coffee cup, fits along with several hundred billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way, one of perhaps 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. To send a light speed message to the edge of that universe would take 15 billion years. It's almost as though God looks at us then and says, any questions? <laughs> any lack of clarity about who's responsible for creation, for redemption, for the fact that we can live and move and have our being, the grandeur and the awesomeness of God Far above any human being were what caused not only the writers of Scripture, but even the Reformers to say, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the praise. To God alone be the honor. It is echoed over and over again in this book. You got a sense of it in our Scripture reading. Allison and Audrey Kim reading from different passages, different books, Old and New Testament in Scripture, over and again, the might, the grandeur, the awesomeness of God. So when it comes to salvation, to life in the Spirit, as Paul speaks of in Romans, we can have but one response, soli Deo Gloria. To only God goes the glory. The year was 1717. The funeral of Louis XIV, king of France. Louis XIV, who would have preferred to have been called Louis the Great, gives you an idea of what he thought of himself. In fact, at one point in time, this emperor over the kingdom would say, I am the state. You ever wonder who the state is? Me. That's who it is. That was Louis XIV. So it shouldn't surprise us that when it came to his funeral, he had the details prepared. He would be buried in a golden coffin, the cathedral in which they would gather would be filled with people, but it would be very dim in the cathedral. And there at his casket, at his coffin, the golden coffin, would be one large candle. It would create a sense of awe and splendor in the place. It would be inspiring. The silence would be profound. People would ponder Louis XIV. And it was carried out as he instructed. Almost. Because the moment came when Bishop Marcion stood, walked over to that candle, and extinguished its flame, and turned and said, only God is great. He might as well have joined his voice to the voices of Paul and the reformers, Writers of Scripture, Soli Deo Gloria. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us this week as we live our lives day to day? I think it means this. At any of those moments where we are tempted to shift the spotlight from God to us, we must say, Soli Deo Gloria. When we consider salvation by grace through faith in the all sufficient work of Christ, we must say, Soli Deo Gloria. When we consider the transformative work in the, of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we must say, Soli Deo Gloria. When we think of the lives that we live and lead in this world, when we think of of buildings we may erect, whether it be churches for the salvation of the soul or hospitals for the healing of the body, we must say, Soli Deo Gloria. When we stand at the beach and watch that crimson sunset or we stand looking into the beautiful verdure of a mountain meadow, we must say, Soli Deo Gloria. When we hold that squirming baby in our arms, filled with the flush of brand new life, or when we stand considering a life long lived, a life well lived, we must say, Soli Deo Gloria. And when we think of what we in this community seek to do in growing disciples by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, for any single one who would come near and say, I want to be a part of that, we say, soli Deo Gloria. And when we consider sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus, there's really only one way to respond. There's only one song to sing. It's a song that has different words. Words like, Now thank we all our God, with hearts and hands and voices. But at that core, at the core of that song, the lyrics are very simple Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. In just a moment, we're going to sing together. We're going to be led by a magnificent orchestra, choir, and organ. And we're going to ask you if you would respond to the blessings that God has poured in abundance into our lives with an offering, a gift to help the work of this church in reaching out to those in deep need. We're going to ask you to stand and to come down to the front. There will be youth that will come across the front, the top of the balcony. They will have baskets into which you can place your gift. I'm going to ask just one simple pragmatic piece, having driven a little bit of the clogged Southern California freeways. We're going to have some clogged aisles. So just stay to the right. Whether you're coming or going, just stay to the right, and that will help us. And I'm going to say don't wait for the actual singing to begin. There will be a prelude that will be orchestra and organ, please come right away. Extend your gift in honor, in expression of soli Deo Gloria.